Hey, what's up everybody? This is Dr. Andy Wilzak. So uh, this is going to be a little bit of a longer introduction this week because this is the one year anniversary of this podcast. Um, and so I don't even know what to say. Like I, I, I didn't think that we would last this long. So I, I want to say thank you um, from the bottom of my heart to all of you listening who have sustained this show over the last year. Um, this show has operated by word of mouth completely. Um, there's zero dollars in marketing. Uh, we don't have any kind of big social media presence outside of my personal Twitter account. Um, and like, in spite of that, we have been able to go for the past year um, and are able to continue to have people on um, who are doing amazing and important and exciting research. Um, who are making incredible innovations in the classroom, who are just flat-out awesome people to come on the show to talk about what they're doing. And so um, to all of you who have taken a gamble um, on me and this podcast over the last year, thank you. Um, I think we have built a really cool community. Um, I hope that I have been able to to do something and to um, you know help you out. Um, as we all go through this really bizarre career path that we have we have picked for ourselves, um, I also want to say um, sincere thank you to uh, Mark Warren, producer to the stars, um, for putting up with me for the last year on, on two different podcasts um, that have continued to, to grow and evolve um, in ways that I think neither of us have predicted. So um, thank you, Mark, very much. Um, and so for the one year anniversary of Untenured Tracks, beginning next week, we're going to have a series of panel interviews um, trying to capture this moment in time as we start the fall 2020 semester amidst um, a tremendous amount of uncertainty surrounding the pandemic. Um, so we'll be having, uh, I believe, four weeks worth of episodes Um all about teaching and scholarship during the pandemic um, with a slate of guests on each show, um, tenured and untenured, um, to try to give us all some insight uh, into things that we can do better, um, to, to visit ways that this has changed us um, for better or worse. Um, and if nothing else, I think just to, to give all of us a way to feel like we're not alone going through this, um, maybe to give us ideas for how to better survive during this, to give us insight into how we feel about our careers during this. Um, and so, uh, yeah, that, that's going to be the next the next month, I think, of this show. Um, I don't have a name for these panels yet. Uh, I, I do want to start featuring more people um, uh, who have tenure. Um, not to detract from people who don't have tenure, but I, I want this show to go in a direction where we are doing everything we can to get knowledge um, out into the world for free. Um, and if so if that means not abandoning um, the untenured approach, because that's the core of the show and always will be, 
but growing in a way where we're doing more panels like the ones we'll have over the next month, then I'm all for it. Um, so, um, again, thank you. As of right now, as of this this time where I'm recording this intro to this week's show, the podcast has been downloaded 3,110 times, um, which is uh, 3,100 times more than I ever thought it would ever be downloaded. So, again, thank you sincerely for everybody um, for supporting the show over the last year. All right. All of that said, this week I am talking with Dr. Claire Griffin from Nazarbayev University in Kazakhstan about her research on the history of science. This is episode 47 of Untenure Tracks. is a fun subject uh, but also a really really tricky one to kind of make sense of uh-huh. um, so when I came to this particular problem I literally, I, I go through my early modern Russian sources and there's lists and lists of all the different medical ingredients we have at the Moscow court in the 17th century in particular and it's just a list of stuff And so you start going through the list and go, okay, what's on here? Where was it from? What kind of thing is this? Um, And ended up with a handful of things which turn out to be American plants, um, which is really not what's supposed to happen. (laughs) So this is not well known outside of Russian history circles, but the story that's supposed to happen is Russia doesn't care about the Americas until like the early 18th century. Mm Mm-hmm. And then the early 18th century, they sail east of the Pacific coast of the Russian Empire, and they hit what's now we call the Aleutian Islands and Alaska. Mm -hmm. And that becomes a Russian colony that's eventually sold to the US. So we're not supposed to have American things in Russia before that. Mm -hmm. Like They actually even banned tobacco in the 17th century. They don't like it. How come? Yeah. um, It seems to be partly kind of an economic thing, because then tobacco is only grown outside of the Russian Empire, so Uh why would you allow your subjects to get interested in a commodity you can't control? Wow. Um, But also it's very... The Russian Orthodox Church really doesn't like tobacco. It's an evil weed. (laughs) Um, So the fact that the the Russian court is using things like sassafras um, and sarsaparilla Uh as medical drugs in certainly already the 1640s we know they're importing it from the 1600s is kind of an oddity yeah um so that was kind of the initial point and the issue there is also i just find the word right i have a list of medical ingredients and there's it just says sassafras and then you're like what do we do with that (laughs) (laughs) um so a lot of what i do 
for that project and for other things is basically a, a probable reconstruction of what is likely to happen. Mm-hmm. So what they mean by sassafras is sassafras albidum, which at that point is only growing kind of southeast part of northern America. Mm-hmm. Um, how is that getting from there to Moscow if someone hasn't written it out for us? Like, what are the other histories that we have to then go look up about uh, Native American knowledge of this mm-hmm. particular plant and the colonization of the Americas and mm-hmm. imports to Eurasia and movement of drugs around Eurasia to get into Moscow? Yeah. And so you have to kind of link up all these things and say at every point in the step, this is the most likely way for this thing to get over here. Okay. That's really interesting. That's that's such a uh, an odd sort of puzzle or riddle to try to figure out. Nearly four hundred years later, how did these random ingredients get to um, almost literally the other side of the world? When it and I, I wasn't aware that that Russia had this uh, what sounds like an almost immediate anti what would become America. Uh, sort of attitude um, almost from the beginning that's that's interesting like I, I don't believe in like providence or anything but that certainly is uh, setting the stage for much of the the 20th and 21st centuries <laughs> just right away that's that's so yeah. that's so strange over tobacco and and these herbal sorts of things it's definitely interesting that we have one of the earliest kind of Russian American uh contact points is a trade war essentially over <laughs> the importation of a commodity like uh, the British in particular want to import tobacco into the Russian Empire the Russian Empire says thanks no thanks we're not having any of that yeah um, yeah so it is you can definitely see um, some interesting points there and once the Russians get to what is now Alaska um, they are trying to hunt for various animals and get hold of sort of otter pelts and things like this and in that region they are then competing with Hudson Bay Bay Company Mm -hmm. so they're again kind of fighting against this kind of early US uh, force in the region and um, trying to get various of the indigenous peoples on their side against (laughs) Hudson Bay Company Wow that's so it's so fascinating so I'm I'm curious, like, do you know when, I mean, because, well, maybe this isn't obvious. I'm very good at playing the dumb guy on these, on these interviews because I'm quite dumb. So at what point does tobacco then become a part of, like, Russian life? So the ban is, so the, we, we have the earliest mentions of tobacco in Russian sources in the first decade of the 17th century. They ban it, I believe, 1627, so pretty fast afterwards. Yeah. Um, the British are smuggling it into the country um, and are also allowed they're allowed to have it for their own purposes like um, something similar to modern drug regulations yeah. like we yeah. selling it and having it for your own personal use is slightly dealt with differently um, I think it's 1698 they lift the tobacco ban Yeah. Um, so this is part of Peter the Great's reforms um, is that he allows tobacco to become be brought into the empire to be processed and they eventually start growing it yeah. So it's really the early 18th century, and I think we can link it to Peter the Great. Peter the Great puts in place a bunch of 
cultural reforms. Yeah. And he wants the Russian Empire to be much more like Western Europe. Yeah. West Europeans smoke tobacco. The Russians stop smoking tobacco. Right. So that that's just becomes part of like his Enlightenment style. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Of, of he reforms. brings in a whole bunch of of changes or attempts to force people yeah. to be more like what he thinks Western Europeans what he thinks, yeah. are like. Yeah. That's interesting because I, I would assume that that the czars and, and the royal family had probably been smoking it, um, in spite of the ban. It's an interesting one. So Peter's father, Alexei Mikhailovich, is in some ways Westernizing because he's he is much more into literate culture. So earlier in the 16th century, the czar does not read, does not write. He has minions for that it's seen as like this this kind of menial task like why, yeah. why would you why would you write your own letters like we mm-hmm. have someone to do that for us mm-hmm. um and so alexei mikhailovich peter's father is a bit more westernizing in that he does read he does write um but on the other hand he is very very russian orthodox he is mm-hmm. very strict in following russian orthodox rules and Russian Orthodox rules of that time period are very strict on what you can consume. Mm-hmm. So I don't believe Alexei Mikhailovich mm. would have smoked. Yeah. It would have been against his particular version of mm-hmm. Tsar, Tsarist <laughs> behavior. Um, so certainly there were deeply hypocritical Tsars, but there were also yeah. Tsars who were devout believers of Russian Orthodoxy. Yeah, yeah. I've been um, studying a lot of world revolutions I, I've developed this fascination with it um, and so I, I'm deep into the Russian revolution and so just like I, I can sure. hear um, echoes there of, of Tsar Nicholas and his uh, sort of intransigence uh, in, in the face of all sorts of resistance against um, what we now know as you know crumbling um, uh, Tsardom sure. uh, the, but sticking with this like orthodoxy above all else um, yes <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is kind of the famous thing about Nicholas II was just his his total inability to, to change. And I mean, there's also a famous line from one of his diaries that some some uh, Soviet researchers pulled out. So I think it's December 1916, um, uh, Nicholas II writes in his diary, this has been such a terrible year, surely next year will be better. <laughs> Which is a great an- great anecdote for the total lack of awareness yeah. of Nicholas II about how things are going for him. <laughs> Which he, he shares with, you know, uh, similar leaders in, uh, at the cusp of, you know, total governmental sure. collapse. Just the, yeah, the, the complete uh, lack of awareness of what's about to happen. Well, I think that, that probably is a sign of impending government collapse, right? Like the total disconnection from what mm-hmm. how how most people in the country feel yep. versus what the leader thinks is happening. If that yep. happens, then yeah, the government's probably going down. Yep. Yeah, not that that ties into anything that's happening in, in the United States <laughs> now yeah. or anything like that. <laughs> exactly. But. I mean, history being applicable <laughs> to the present day, who would say such a thing? <laughs> yeah, certainly not. I, a loyal American citizen, would say that. So. <laughs> Um, so I, I don't want to stray into my own into my own stuff. Um, so you're you're doing this, this research that's kind of untangling these riddles, trying to trace the most likely sequence of events down. So how does that 
how does that work? Like, how do you how do you do that? Partly, it's heavy reliance on other people's work. Yeah. So, I'm not a specialist on Native American knowledge or healing plants, or you know, the Spanish Empire in the Atlantic, or even the trade routes through Western Europe. Um, and so, when I pick up something like, look, sassafras is good because in that period it really grows only in one region, which is a long, long way from Moscow. And so I can trace that thing through other people's work and what other people have said. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we can start to string together how other people's work connects up to each other and is going to connect into the Russian story. So if you're, I mean, I think if you're doing any kind of global history, really, you have to have either multiple people working on one project at a time or you have to have heavy reliance on other people's things that other people have said uh, because we can only specialize in certain amount of things and it's just not possible for one historian to know all of the languages um, and all of the background and read all of the manuscripts on something that covers such a huge territory Mm -hmm. that's been written about by so many different historical figures. Mm -hmm. So what um, what got you interested in this? This is such a unique <laughs> area of research. What what was it about this that that drew you to it? Yeah, it's a good question. So I did all of my degrees in Slavic studies. So mm-hmm. I was always always interested in Russian history. Got interested in early modern Russian history, and we were reading work on Ivan the Terrible. So this famous 16th century bizarre and I read the theory that um, that Ivan the Terrible might have been taking chemical medicines mm-hmm. in the 16th century uh, so this is actually based off during the Soviet Union they had to dig up one of the cathedrals in the Moscow Kremlin for restoration work mm-hmm. and so they decided whilst we have all of these skeletons up um, why don't we run some tests on them mm-hmm. And they found things like mercury and arsenic in the remains of Ivan and various other figures of mm-hmm. that time period. And then the question is, well, how did we get there? Yeah. And so one of the theories is, well, maybe they're doing Paracelsian style, although it's a bit, for, for, for Ivan the Terrible, it's a bit early for real Paracelsian medicine, but sort of chemical medicines. What is, is par- what, I'm sorry to interrupt, in? what is Paracelsian? Oh, Paracelsus. Okay, so <laughs> Paracelsus was a Swiss-German... Uh, medical practitioner Uh and he basically said what we should use to cure people are chemicals Um, and he particularly liked things like mercury Okay, and this was his recommendation Um, he is around for a while at the end of the 16th century and then dies Um, and it's really his followers the Paracelsians who promote his ideas so his ideas are not entirely new people have been using chemicals in medicine for a while um, but he is the most famous person and he promotes this chemical medicine movement in early modern Europe I'm just curious, do you know how he died? Oh, that's a really good question I don't, <laughs> Ooh, that would be fantastic if he Could died from, from mercury poisoning <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I might have to try and work that out, like, do we know how Paracelsus died? It's a good question um, So, the, because this is really popular in places like Germany or Mm -hmm. the German lands at the time the question is did it get to Moscow Mm -hmm. Um, and so I was looking into this and it's really tricky to try and work out 
the medical practice of the 16th century Russian court, um, we have very, very little mm-hmm. of, of the official department from that time period. Of the whole 16th century, we have eight recipes mm-hmm. remaining that have survived. <laughs> um, but my supervisor told me, the person who was then supervising my undergrad dissertation and became my PhD supervisor, said, well, on the other hand, for the 17th century, we have this thing called the Apothecary Chancery, and they have thousands of mm-hmm. records. And it's the prescriptions, and it's import lists, and like letters from the physicians to the department, and reports, mm-hmm. and pay lists, and like all kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when I became his PhD student, I looked at this collection of documents and said, we need to look at this more. Like, this is such a fantastic department that does so many different things. Mm-hmm. Um, we need to understand better what this department is up to um, and understand about kind of science and medicine in this period of the Russian Empire. Mm-hmm. And these documents on Sassafras, almost everything I have on Sassafras is coming out of that department. Mm-hmm. Um, once we get into the 18th century, I have a few other things that are kind of not directly connected into it, but it's really that 17th century official Russian medical department, which is pro-American mm-hmm. medicaments. Hmm. That's interesting. Um, yeah. So you had, you had mentioned that you have several projects that you're working on. Is there something yeah. else that you want to... Sure. So that, that, that drug trade project... Um, I published an article with Journal of Global History recently on that, and that's my book project that I'm okay. trying to finish. Excellent. Next project is also out of this uh, interesting 17th century official Russian medical department, um, and it has to do with gunshot wounds. Hmm. Uh, yeah, so one of the things that this department does is, if you are a Russian soldier who has been shot in the course of you know being a soldier, <laughs> uh, you will be sent to the department you will be examined um, and they will talk about the wound and like what kind of wound does this person have Uh but they also want to know what kind of firearm caused this wound Okay. and there's a very heavy focus on specifically on firearms so people must be getting injured with other things like crossbows and edged weapons and things like this but we're really into knowing about bullet wounds Hmm. specifically and so I read this collection of documents when I was already kind of going through looking for my drug trade material. And it's one of those things where you go, I've got to come back to this. Mm-hmm. I've got to work out why we care Yeah. what kind of firearm is being used here. Like, that's an important... Like, this is clearly significant to them. Yeah. This is very much typical of Muscovite history. Something is important. It's not clear why that's important to them. <laughs> Muscovite documents famously don't explain themselves. Like, they'll tell you something is important, but really not tell you why. <laughs> huh. So, so why do you think it was important to them? It's a good question. So I had an interesting one, an interesting suggestion from a colleague that this might be a very gruesome kind of surveillance of the enemy's military capacities Mm -hmm. because in the early modern period we have a lot of firearms um, and they all produce kind of different effects so we have lots and lots of different kinds of guns being produced of of various Mm -hmm. calibers so if we're going through all of our people who've been shot 
we can get a bit of an idea, well, do they have new style carbines or are they using Hawk buses or something like this? So it might be a way of trying to work out, do these guys have the newest, shiniest on the market guns hmm. or do they have some of the older, uh, perhaps less, um, uh, less, uh, less well at being aimed uh, slower to load guns mm. like what do they actually have available to them which is I think is an interesting suggestion I think that that could definitely be part of what's happening mm -hmm. yeah that makes sense it's definitely grim mm -hmm. and <laughs> yeah they are, they are really gruesome records like they, I mean really incredibly detailed yeah. records of, of wounds yeah yeah, that, I mean that just sounds like something that you would that you would see in a movie, where there's some some doctor who is who has developed a reputation for being uh, too brutal is now like experimenting <laughs> to see what kind of wounds these injuries like these weapons create. Uh, I mean, when you were when you were telling me that, like my my reaction was like along those lines, like this is just this, uh, not like a natural experiment, but like we have an opportunity to learn how bullets destroy people's insides and so let's <laughs> let's try to turn the lemons of our dead troops into some lemonade <laughs> yeah i mean i think i think this is definitely a part of what they're doing because they are i mean incredibly interested in the 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 gruesome minutiae of what did this do to someone's body huh so to go back to what you said a second ago about how Muscovite documents are just are not very clear in in explaining what their purpose is, is that a cultural thing? Is that is that something that at the time was a directive by the government or? Yeah. So the way I'm thinking about this is, it's clear to them. Uh huh. So all documents contain the right amount of information for the person producing the document, right? Yeah. Like, we include everything in it that we need. Mm -hmm. But if we are not part of that culture, it's totally unclear to us. So a lot of, been, a lot of been work has been done here on things like recipes. So if you think about a modern recipe, mm -hmm. it includes some information, but not others. So mm -hmm. something like um, different kinds of sugar. Mm -hmm. So if you live in that country at that time period, so mm -hmm. a British person knows what caster sugar is. We mm -hmm. can go to the shop, we can find it. But caster sugar doesn't exist everywhere mm -hmm. around the world. Um, and it hasn't always been around. Mm -hmm. So, you know, 500 years from now, someone might read it and go, well, what on earth is caster sugar? Yeah. So the real issue here is that there's this gaping chasm between what I would need to know to be able to read these documents and what the Muscovites writing the document knew. Mm -hmm. So they know something else they haven't written down. Yeah, okay. Um, so we do know that the Russian court, I mean, we, they used a lot of documents, but there's also a lot of, of, of oral exchange happening yeah. as kind of bound into their literate documentary mm -hmm. processes, and we're missing that section. So there's a whole part of the process that we just don't have, and so we can read a document and go, I have no idea why you've done this thing. Mm -hmm. um, it's also tricky because, so the apothecary chancery is one part of the imperial system at that point. There are, depending on the, where we are in the century, there's about 70 other departments, including several military departments. Mm -hmm. So 
it's possible somewhere in one of the collections of one of the military departments or even one of the kind of more um, the departments more connected to the Tsar's decision-making processes, mm-hmm. that somewhere there is a document that says, by the way, we should start writing this stuff down for the following reason. Yeah. But it isn't in the apothecary chancery files, and so unless I'm, I do some magnificent archival <laughs> search and somehow manage to get that one document that tells us what it means, I just don't have that piece of the puzzle. Mm-hmm. But when you do find that, when you do accomplish that magnificent archival research, we'll have this conversation to point back to. <laughs> I, I have people always kind of want me to find the, this missing link, and I have to keep telling people like we never find it for Muscovy. Like in theory, there's some kind of documents. So, for example, like the Russian invasions of what is now Alaska and their earlier enthusiasm for American medicaments, like. There should be a link there, right? Like, there should be some kind of connection of the Americas as a place where you can get good stuff you can sell for decent money. Mm-hmm. But I've never found a document that says, hey, remember how that place has that stuff we like? Maybe we should go there. <laughs> like, I don't know that that document exists. Yeah. So, much as I would love to find the missing link, I am very, I would never really spend time looking for the missing link because you could spend you could spend 10 years just swimming through um, the military documents of the Russian Empire I'm sure. and never find that thing I'm sure oh yeah I'm I'm sure I'm sure it must be wild it seems like too like I, I'm I'm surprised that there aren't like diary records that people working in the apothecary or these other places would have would have kept because I, I don't know it, it just seems like the most obvious thing in the world to me but clearly it's not the solution Right. Well, we have to remember that diaries are a very specific form of writing mm-hmm. and that most cultures, kind of speaking from a very broad world historical sense, have mm-hmm. not valued diary writing. So we hmm. have a handful of texts. So Samuel Collins is a British physician who works at the Russian court and writes an account of Russia when he gets home. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a, I'm going to forget his name now, but there's a Scottish military guy who also works for the Russians at one point, um, and he has a bunch of diaries, which mm-hmm. are very helpful. The Russians themselves, before the 18th century, it's just not something they value. Like, they, huh. for a spot, they don't tend to write about themselves very much. It's not. So writing about oneself is a very specific kind mm. of thing. Okay. And they don't tend to do it. Um, the only document of that general type I can think of is a very, very idiosyncratic source um, a late 17th century churchman who's kind of a, a rebel from the Orthodox Church um, called uh, Avakon Petrov writes his own saint's life. Mm-hmm. So it's in the genre of a saint's life that he writes it about himself, mm-hmm. which is kind of the closest thing you'd get to an autobiography mm-hmm. for that period. But it's just not part of Muscovite culture to keep a oh. diary, so we don't have diaries. I like I like the oxymoron of an orthodox rebel. <laughs> yes, also because at the time the church was trying to reform, and so mm-hmm. he was rebelling against the establishment by sticking to the old rules. So this is you might have heard <laughs> truly, of the old believer sect. Mm-hmm. Truly orthodox then. About the Russian, yeah, Russian revolution. So the old believer sect, 
Um, at this point, in the 17th century, they're not old believers because it's just, you know, it, there's nothing old about their belief. It's just yeah. belief. Yeah. Uh, but Avakum Petrov is one of the original rebels against the reforms who gets taken up mm-hmm. as a symbolic leader of what turns into old belief. Mm-hmm. That's that's so interesting. Um, so I, I want to talk about how you uh, bring your scholarship into the classroom, but I, I think first people would probably um, want to know more about where you're at specifically. Sure. Yeah, so I am an assistant professor at a place called Nazarbayev University in Kazakhstan. We're in the capital of Kazakhstan. Um, we are an English-speaking university that runs an American-style kind of liberal arts program. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I teach the history of science and a few kind of related things. Um, and yeah, cur- well, currently we are all online, but usually I would be in classrooms with uh, my students. We are mo- mostly local students. So this is a state university. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have a very, very high, probably I would say 90 plus percent um, Kazakhstani students, mm-hmm. especially for undergraduate, but we do have students from also around Central Asia, and we're increasingly getting a few students from elsewhere as mm-hmm. well, especially for things like master's programs and PhD hmm. programs. Hmm. So I, I imagine that you're probably tired of people asking this, but how did you end up there? It's a good question. So <laughs> I, was, I was previously at a research institute in Berlin, Mm-hmm. and was a postdoc and was applying for various things and this job came up where they said so I'm a historian of science who speaks Russian mm-hmm. um, this job came up and said okay we need a historian of science for this English speaking university um, Kazakhstan the two official languages of Kazakhstan are Kazakh and Russian mm-hmm. so I'm kind of a good fit for the job in that it is possible to work here and not speak Russian or Kazakh yeah. but it's certainly much more convenient both for the university and for the individual faculty member if you speak at least one Mm -hmm. so it just happened to be that i was a a good fit for this specific job like someone who does history of science in english Mm -hmm. but functions in russian so what's it been like living and working there um it is fascinating so we are so this is the capital that was kind of created the old capital is almaty in the south this is astana which was renamed as Rosh sultan um, a little while ago and so it was there was an original Soviet city here um, but it once it was turned into the capital of independent Kazakhstan um, they put up a bunch of new buildings and it's all very sci-fi and shiny and cool really? uh, yeah so this is fun um, and yeah like there's a lot of good things about living here so we are very pro pets in this university <laughs> Um, and so almost all of us have adopted street cats and street dogs of some description. <laughs> so my my own little former street cat is actually happily very sleepy over in the corner right now and doesn't yeah. seem inclined to interfere in the process. <laughs> um, yeah, and I mean, so the area around where I live is very, very flat. We're on the steppe. Mm-hmm. Um, but Kazakhstan in general has this amazing natural beauty. And like I have these great photos from... Uh, going up into the mountains outside Almaty in the south and seeing things like this. So, I mean, it is it is a lot of pressure and it can be very stressful to live in to live in a country that is has a very different way of doing things than the UK mm-hmm. um, and to have to be in for certain official things. I'm doing everything in Russian, mm-hmm. um, 
which is simultaneously a huge privilege to use this colonial language that I picked up for my research, um, but also can be a lot of effort. If you speak to anyone who has to function in their second language a lot of the time, mm-hmm. it is it is an effort, and it is kind of... Um, it can be quite tiring. Mm-hmm. It's funny as well. So I had to go to the dentist a few weeks ago, and they I went in and they said... Which very literally means, do you have direction? And I was like, I think so. <laughs> but it turns out that word also means like a referral from your doctor. Okay. Which is one of the things that you're not <laughs> going to learn in language class. And you just have to learn by like being on the spot and yep. going, oh, we use that word for a bunch of things. <laughs> yeah, so there's there's a lot of good things and there's some difficult things as well about being here. Um, so have you, I'm, I'm curious, and how do I ask this question? So how does Kazakhstan, or the, the average Kazakhstani, reckon today with their their status as a former Soviet state? Interesting. Um, so Kazakhstan is part of the Commonwealth of Independent States, mm-hmm. which is kind of Russia and Russia's former colonies. Mm-hmm. So people are able to move in and out of Kazakhstan around that group fairly easily. Um, or I should say relatively easily. Mm-hmm. So there's still a lot of links, especially across the border into Siberia. So mm-hmm. we're not I mean, in the general uh, in the general kind of context of Eurasia, we're not mm-hmm. that far from Siberia, which mm-hmm. means it would still take you like a couple of days to drive there. <laughs> yeah. Um, so there's definitely a lot of links to Russia. Um, a lot of people even if they are not ethnic Russians, would speak Russian as their first language. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is also a huge growth of of an understanding of Russia as an empire um, and Kazakhstan as a former colony, and as of the fact that Kazakh was, to a greater or lesser and more or less explicit degree at various periods, repressed by the Russian empire. And the fact that Kazakh is only one of the official languages of Kazakhstan is an artifact of the Russian Empire. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that is happening in independent Kazakhstan is Kazakh is being used in a much more extensive way than it was under the Soviet Union. Um, so, for example, at NU, so we do everything in English, mm-hmm. um, but they have to also take Kazakh language classes. Mm-hmm. So you haven't been met with resistance to your research. That's the reason I asked that, because I, I, oh, sure. I'm i thinking about uh, like myself and the work that I'm interested in. And um, so just as some, like, some of my background, a couple of years ago, I was invited to give a talk um, to practitioners and university students in Panama City, um, which sure. has a, a, a very complicated <laughs> past with the United States. Um, yeah. And so I, I went down there and I was... Um, as we're like touring different places and stuff, I, you know, I was very clear to, to be kind of passive and very respectful. Um, and in my in my talk that I gave, I I intentionally worked in parts that were critical of the United States, um, as a as a way to demonstrate that like I'm not here as an American to tell you how to do things um, when you know better than I how things work here. And so I'm just I'm just. And I could see somebody in that position like totally botching that, right? So I'm just that's why oh, yeah, I'm just yeah. curious, like how how your research is received, just given where you're living. Sure. I mean, I have given papers at other Kazakhstan universities, 
Um, and I think for what I am specifically doing and given who I am as a British person, mm-hmm. that hasn't really come up. Okay. So it's not like I myself am Russian, so mm-hmm. I'm not kind of a, a, a representative of empire in that sense. Yeah. Although, obviously, I'm a representative <laughs> of the empire of global English, and yeah. that's uh, another issue. Um, and also what I'm doing, so I tend to work mostly in the 17th century, and that's actually before the Russian Empire starts colonizing the Kazakh steppe. So mm-hmm. it's really early 18th century onwards mm-hmm. that the Russian Empire starts pushing into the steppe region and colonizing mm-hmm. what is now Kazakhstan and the rest mm-hmm. of Central Asia. So I think I'm kind of aside enough from that colonization story that I don't get. Yeah. Um, I don't get that specific uh, reading, but there certainly is a... I mean, I certainly walk into rooms aware of who I am and why I'm here, um, and I'm certainly aware that there is a, a massive privilege to be someone who is both a native English speaker and a speaker of Russian yeah. in Central Asia, where those are, are languages of privilege um, that are often put above mm-hmm. the actual languages of Central yeah. Asia. Yeah. Um, so I, I I had never learned any Turkic languages and I specifically have been trying to pick up Kazakh, at least kind of like basic conversational Kazakh to be able to say please and thank you in Kazakh even if I do the rest in Russian mm-hmm. um, as kind of just a kind of basic level of responsibility mm-hmm. yeah that's so interesting, thank you for indulging me with yeah, that, no problem. Well, that I question. mean this is what we're doing today right? <laughs> like, it's a, Right. You ask me questions, I try and answer them. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, are you able to talk about your specific research um, with your students or in your in the classes that you teach? Yeah, um, I do bring it in in some of the different classes. So, um, so I run our introduction to the history of science and technology. So we split. I do science and technology, and my colleague Elliot Bowen does history of medicine. Mm-hmm. So one of the topics I bring up for science and technology is, so we look at early modern science um, and we look at, well, what, what have people said about early modern science and what here, what is the kind of old narrative of old and modern science and what have people done to complicate it? So there mm-hmm. is this old idea of like the scientific revolution of rich white men <laughs> thinking important thoughts in their European homes. And so I give them like a lecture on that historiography and uh-huh. then we spend the rest of that section of the course talking about all the ways in which that's wrong. <laughs> um, and one of the ways we talk about it is this this very important intersection of colonialism and science and medicine in the early modern period. So the fact that Sassafras ends up in Moscow is very much to do with that connection. So um, as the Spanish Empire is colonizing the Americas, they quickly realize that there's a bunch of stuff that grows in the Americas that doesn't grow elsewhere um, and they've been told by the Native Americans that has good medicinal qualities and so this then fuels the further colonization and fuels all that colonial violence because the Spanish are trying to get hold of things like sassafras and sarsaparilla and various other commodities and tobacco as well um, to extract them from the Americas and sell them to Eurasia mm-hmm. so we talk about the inherent violence of early modern science and the way that colonialism and science are absolutely bound up together Mm -hmm. so yeah i have i have done the sassafras 
um, example with them in particular. Mm-hmm. And, and how do students respond to that? I think it makes a lot of sense to them. I mean, they are, again, they live in a former colony. They are aware that colonialism can be very heavily bound up with other things. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think if you give them if you give them a good explanation of, okay, I am saying that science and colonialism are bound up together because if we look at this story, we can see that they are. Um, and so they respond well to going, oh, it's interesting, but like, I I don't, I haven't necessarily thought of science as related to empire, but I can definitely see through the way that we've connected X to Y to Z that these things are bound up together. Mm-hmm. No, I, I can um, relate because... Uh, I have never made that connection before myself either, um, but and um, which is, I think, troubling um, because I, I I pay attention to to conversations surrounding the American genocide and and kind of a, a recent some recent momentum that 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 specific um, truth of, of our history has has gained momentum and and has gotten more and more attention and more acceptance from people, um, but it, it's always presented strictly in terms of of wealth and power and land and and the science part of it mm. is never really is never really brought up but hearing you say it, it makes it makes yeah. perfect sense that's interesting because in history of science this is a huge huge topic so n- not just in that context but like um in the british empire mm-hmm. and the post-colonial context and how colonialism continues to structure science has been huge in history of science. So it's interesting that there's this disjunction between if we're talking about empire in general, we talk about it in terms of land and things mm-hmm. like this, whereas it's the historians of science who are talking yeah. about the science-colonialism connection. Yeah, and now I'm wondering if if it's not the case that the narrative is structured in a, in a sort of capitalist way. Do you know what I mean? That at least from from the sources that I've seen and, and the people that I've seen talking about it, that framing it just in terms of land and, and wealth and all the power that's associated with that, uh, I mean, those are those are things that historically capitalism has, has thrived on. And then something like yeah. medicine, um, especially medicine that's not like a pharmaceutical, that's not that's not manufactured, that's just something that's growing from growing naturally, occurring naturally. I, I think. I wonder if we're just so far removed from that that that's why that part of the narrative is just washed aside because the the bloodshed of of slavery and and forced you know mining for gold and, and other valuables that that tends to take over the narrative. I think that's definitely part of it. I think there's also a lot of resistance in sort of the general pop culture sphere or kind of general discourse to the idea that science and medicine have bad things in them. Yeah. So if you look at things like um, the resistance to the idea that there is racism in- inherent in medicine, yes. and the resistance to the idea of abuse in mental health spheres, mm-hmm. we know so th- people desperately want medical doctors to be these kind of golden shining angels <laughs> who have never done anything wrong and how dare you say anything mm-hmm. um, against them. But it's not true. Like there are there are huge institutional problems in mm-hmm. medicine, and there have been, you know, forever. And um, medicine has been constructed by colonialism 
and white supremacy and so it has these these huge issues built into it but some people just don't want to hear that because mm-hmm. doctors are supposed to be the ones who are working incredibly hard to <laughs> for the benefit of all of us mm-hmm. people don't want to hear that also there are these huge problems you know <laughs> Yeah, and then just once in a while, it slips out a page from a med school textbook that says, you know, this race is a a very high pain tolerance, and this race is just kind of whiny. (laughs) Right, exactly. And then people are shocked because they haven't thought about this before. Because if you refuse to ever acknowledge that there can be problems in medicine, when medicine becomes a problem, people are suddenly, well, usually white people are suddenly like, (laughs) Oh, is there a problem here? I hadn't somehow realized this before. And then every every person of color has to like put their head in their hands and say, "Were you not listening a billion times? We have had to say this before. Like this has been the issue for so long." Can I can I speak to medicine's manager about this? I'm not happy. <laughs> I'd like to yeah, file a complaint yeah, with the Better is. Business Bureau. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So pulling all of these threads of medicine and colonialism together and kind of getting getting that as part of the discussion of of colonialism and white supremacy is so important like historically and in the present day that's so interesting i'm I'm teaching a class called race class gender and crime and i i always start the class off by talking about the history and the origins and the and the justification of slavery in the united states and i'm definitely going to work this into into that now i'm glad i haven't i haven't already given that lecture now i can dig something up or or just oh, send them to this so interview yeah, yeah 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 and there's especially if you're talking about something like slavery and medicine mm-hmm. there are some i mean there are some dark and horrific stories that you can see in a lot of great scholarship that has, has really dug into this about how medicine and slavery were very mm-hmm. much bound up together yeah yeah and again like i'm having one of those because it's it's very it's not very late at night it's it's night here like those late night kind of epiphanies like like of course, that like this human experimentation didn't just start with with the Nazis in World War II. Obviously, this must have been happening dating back to fourteen ninety two. Yeah, like, it, it it had to have been. Yeah, exactly. Um, that's awesome. That's I mean, it's tragic, but that's I'm very appreciative of being able to make this this sure. connection now. Um, so how do your so you said that your students um they they have a tendency to say that this isn't something that they've thought about before, but certainly the connection makes sense. Are there are there parts of, of what you teach that they they struggle with? Ooh, interesting. Or are there maybe a better way to ask the question is um, I, I ask this a lot to criminal justice professors because that's more of my background. Are there are there common myths that you find your students coming into your classes with that you that you know like okay, this upcoming semester I'm going to have to spend one day trying to debunk this and one day trying to debunk that, and so on? Yes, definitely. Um, yeah, because, I mean, all, all undergraduates come in with certain ideas, right? Like, there's going to be certain things they know about and they're good at, good at, and certain things they don't know about and certain things they are less good at. There's a couple of interesting ones that come up in my fields. So I hadn't realized when I first started teaching that I need to tell people that medieval people didn't think the earth was flat. <laughs> or, or rather that certainly not everyone in the medieval world thought that. Like because of course in, in in that period of time there are, you know, a whole bunch of different ways of thinking about the earth and the stars and the sun across different cultures. Um, and this idea that, oh yeah, the earth was flat and we thought we could sail off it, like, no. Um 
So that's one that I have to remember to work in the history of science. The other one, which is very odd, um, so I run a, a course on cannibalism as this, as a racist accusation. So um, Western Europeans were really into this eating of human body parts for medical purposes. This kind of called corpse medicine, medicinal cannibalism. Uh-huh. Um, this is banned at the Russian court, uh-huh. which is one part of Russian medicine that everyone's always on board for. Um, <laughs> And so this led me into the whole literature on cannibalism and particularly the idea that, or this scholarship, that there's been a lot of cannibalism accusations which are basically just, we don't like this group of people, so we're going to call them all cannibals and then we can enslave them and take their land. Yeah. Um, and so I run a whole course on this called Cannibalism and Civilization. Um, and interestingly, one thing that they are commonly told in high school here and kind of my offenses around the world is that James Cook was eaten, uh-huh. um, which is is not true. James Cook was killed because of a fight that he basically started, and then he was um, his remains were kind of cremated, basically. Um, and the British thought he could have been eaten because that's what the British did uh, as they were sailing around what they called then the South Seas, so now the kind of Pacific Islands. Um, is their presumption was that people would be cannibals even if there was no solid evidence that they were. So I have to spend a certain amount of time on no, James Cook died and was effectively cremated, we would call it today. Um, He was not at. So my first question is, can I have your syllabus for that class? I, 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 all of my syllabi are up on the website. That sounds um, there incredible. Is a whole talk about, if you want to talk about cannibalisms as racist accusations, there is a massive literature on this. Um, and it is, it is really great if you want to talk about that kind of discourse. There is some fantastic scholarship on this from like a whole bunch of different really great people. I... If it was not 10.30 at night here, I would text my chair right now <laughs> to say, <laughs> guess what? <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. I mean, my one of my goals post-tenure has been to come up with classes that uh, are maybe on the fringe of sociology and, and criminology and what I do. And a, <laughs> a class on cannibalism just... Given the university that I work at, would be amazing, an amazing experience. But beyond that, like, oh, I have so many questions to ask you now. Sorry, I didn't. Just derailed the whole conversation. Oh no! Oh no! No no no! This is this is great. Uh, I didn't know that that colonial era Europeans were cannibals. <laughs> oh. It's a it is a a little known fact. Um, so. Uh, yeah, it's a, again, it's a very, very complicated history. So there are certain ancient world compound medicines that because of weird processes of translation and copying over the centuries, the early modern Europeans came to the idea that some of them should have actual, for example, uh, powdered human mummy uh-huh. in them, which is not what the original ancient world texts say. Okay. Um, and this seems to be the reason that early modern Europeans started using a bunch of uh, human body parts in medicine. So most famously is this like literally powdered uh, 
human mummified corpse. Um, and it is it is very popular in certain segments of early modern European medical society, uh, I would say 16th, 17th into the 18th century. Mm-hmm. And again, the Russians are super against this. Like yeah. they call it, they call this unclean yeah. powder. Like, thank you, no. <laughs> We're not having it. Um, it's, that's the attitude at the start of the 17th century. They get into it by the 18th century, um, as it were. But initially, they are very much against this. <laughs> Mummy powder becomes a thing. Was it was it like any specific places in Europe that was that was doing this, or was this just like a Western European or Western and Central Western European Europe general? Um, you know, it's really hard with European medicine to say. Oh well, it was you know maybe yeah. mostly the German lands because some people will say, oh, I completely agree, and some people will say, no, you haven't considered Italy sufficiently <laughs> or something like it. Um, it. It definitely pops up in a number of different texts. Certainly German texts, certainly British texts. Um, I'm not quite sure of the precise distribution across Western Europe because yeah. I only ever care about Western Europe as it helps me for Russian things. For sure. So I've established that it was a thing in Western Europe. Um, other, beyond that, I don't know the exact distribution across the continent or subcontinent, really. Why do we call it a continent? It does not deserve this name. <laughs> It, it, yeah, I don't know. Uh, that's incredible. That that ranks up there with with the revelation that uh, revolutionary era Paris uh, smelled horrible, and and the practices there. Uh, now that I can add that there were in all likelihood <laughs> cannibals. <laughs> Oh, that's Montaigne amazing. Has a whole essay on this, like Montaigne is like, how dare you accuse, um, uh, in his case, the South American uh, groups of being bad for being cannibals when we ourselves are cannibals. Like yeah. we use human body parts in our medicines. Yeah, that was going to be my next question. So, is it is it that Europe has this kind of cultural change that says that cannibalism is actually bad, and now we're now we're looking down on other societies or is it that we think are are barbaric and so therefore they must be cannibals or is it like a projection it's just, of- I mean it's it's the second one basically like so um, so Montaigne writes this whole essay called on cannibals or of cannibals um, in which he points out this hypocrisy and says well we use human body parts in our medicines but we don't call ourselves cannibals but we call these other guys cannibals and why, why are we doing that and well, why is it? Why is what we think they are doing worse? Yeah. Um, so it's there's whole, a whole kind of combination of things, and it's it's for the Europeans, even though they are performing medical cannibalism, and even though, as as the Protestants always point out, Catholics are officially symbolic cannibals mm-hmm. because um, yeah. at one point uh, in the Middle Ages, um, it's officially decided by the Catholic Church that. Uh, the the this symbolic body and blood of Christ Christ the official position is that it is literally transformed yeah. from from wine and bread into blood and food um, so they are cannibals in a yeah. certain way and yet cannibalism the eating of other human beings is the taboo for mm-hmm. early modern Europeans like it is the worst thing you could possibly do despite the fact we're kind of doing it all the time 
and therefore all these people we don't like well they mm -hmm. must be doing this terrible thing because yeah. we don't like them they must be terrible they must do the, the most terrible thing we can yeah. think of yeah and so it becomes part of that that othering process that that happens especially when encountering absolutely. new groups yeah absolutely um, they're all monsters and people eaters basically. yeah yeah i wonder if that practice ever made it to the united states of, me of medical um, of cannibalism people cannibals no of medical or, of, of medical of cannibalism yeah Ooh, interesting because i i know that i mean obviously it was here um and and sure. may actually still be right I, 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 we know that from uh, as as central and western United States was was colonized. That certainly there were there were colonists who resorted to cannibalism as a way to survive. Um, but yeah, and I mean we know we have this modern day practice where people eat their own placenta. Mm -hmm. So technically yeah. cannibalism. Yeah. So yep. this is going on. Um, I don't remember. I think. Perhaps some of the earlier U.S. pharmacopoeias mm -hmm. might have mummy powder in them. Yeah. Yeah. It would make sense. I guess, oh, I guess depending on which colony, but it, it would make sense that it would... Yeah. That it would I, I would think so. Given huh. the timing and who is doing yeah. the colonizing, I would expect yeah. at least some of it to yeah. have made it to the Americas. That's so interesting. I'm going to go on your website and get your syllabi and, and order yeah. as many of the books as I can <laughs> for it now. Yeah. Excellent. <laughs> this sounds so fun. Oh, it will be. I I can't I can't wait. I've been disappointed that my classes are online this semester. I just I just moved them online, um, and I'm looking forward now to being able to to kick off this class um, by talking about cannibalism. And, and science as a a part of of empire and genocide and its role in that. And now my mind is racing to like where are pop culture depictions of this and and, and other ways to to tie it into into folklore and, and things like that. Uh, thank you. I'm glad that I had this opportunity to talk with you. You're welcome. Um, I think that's a good place to wrap it up. I, I could easily take up another hour of your time um, just uh, picking your brain, so to speak. <laughs> about, As it were, yeah, exactly. <laughs> about all this. Um, thank you so much, Claire. No problem. I was very happy to talk. Hey. Andy Wilzak again. So I uh, hope you enjoyed this week's show as much as we enjoyed putting it together. If you did, we would really appreciate it if you left us positive reviews, five-star ratings on iTunes and all of the other podcast places that you can do this stuff. And more importantly, this show thrives on word of mouth. So we are doing this completely through social media. All of the guests that we've had are people that I found on Twitter. <laughs> so if you are untenured and you are in any kind of academic discipline or you have an advanced degree and are working out in the field and you want an opportunity to come on the show and hype your stuff, please reach out. You can follow us on Twitter at Untenure Tracks or me at Hey Dr. Will. That's H-E-Y-D-R-W-I-L. Please send me a message on one or both accounts and we will book you on the show. It doesn't matter what your discipline is. I know that a lot of our previous interviews have been sociology and criminology based because that's my background, but I am open to anybody. So again, please rate and review the show. Tell your friends, tell your people about this, and I'll see you next week. Bye.